Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down for a conversation on value investing with Tobias Carlyle. Tobias is a value investor, author of numerous books on value investing, and the founder of Acquires Funds, a deep value stock-focused investment advisory firm. In this discussion, we learn about what brought Tobias into value investing, how other periods of value stock performance compares to the one we're in today, what has and hasn't changed in terms of investor behavior, and why value works for the long term, and the current opportunity investors are being presented with in today's market. This is a longer episode than normal, so we had to make some edits, but I think you'll find it full of value investing wisdom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the discussion. You know, Toby, what I wanted to tell you was, um, you know, we started our podcast basically because of, you know, your inspiration. It, it kind of started when I was down at Inside ETFs and, you know, you were basically just getting going with your podcast and we had that discussion and then, you know, I kind of came back to Jack and said, you know, we should, and we had been sort of talking it through, but we just never were able to pull the trigger. I don't know if we weren't confident in ourselves or what it was, you know, that that we didn't think we had the time, but, um, you know, you've been sort of a a good inspiration and and motivator for us. And um, you're also our first guest, by the way. So, oh, awesome. Well, I appreciate hopefully, that. If, if that. If this, if this performance of value continues, you, you might be our first and last guest. <laughs> no, in terms of you getting initially interested in value, I don't know this about you. Like, when did that sort of start for you? Because I was looking at quantitative value. So this was published in 2013. So obviously you had a lot. Yeah, December 2012. Yeah. Okay. So, so, and you had worked probably at least a year or two on this book with Wes? Yeah, we wrote that. So that got written in like three months. Really? Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Because I, so, I was, I'd never written anything before and I didn't know and I just wanted to get it out. I'm like, I had all of these ideas and so I just kind of, I just, every day I just wrote like eight hours a day and just ground it out. And what was the, you know, how did you get to this point with, with quantitative value? I mean, was it you were just doing research on value investing and value stocks or kind of what brought you there? So I had, um, well, I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was at school. My dad was like, you should do law because lawyers always, lawyers are never out of a job. So I, I did that with not, didn't really enjoy it, didn't really enjoy practicing, but I practiced for uh, 10 years altogether, including like in the US and Australia. And the thing that I found most interesting when I was doing it was the transaction stuff, like mergers and acquisitions is fun even though the exact stuff that I was doing was not really fun. Like I, it, when you're a junior lawyer, you do a lot of diligence and diligence mm. sucks. You go into mm. a, you go, it, for one thing, it's really long hours. Like it's the hundred hour weeks, totally common. And then probably averaging somewhere between 60 and 80, depending on what was kind of happening. Uh, but what you're doing for the most part is you're in a data room, which is like, Either you're working for the acquirer, in which case you're going into the data room and reading all the stuff in the data room and trying to figure out where all the landmines are buried in the company that you're trying Mm -hmm. to acquire, or 
you're working for the vendor and you've got to supply all of the stuff in the data room. If you've never been in a data room, they just stink because there's like 30 people working in there 24 hours a oh, day. Man. Like filled with like smelly and like, oh, that's disgusting. Sweaty <laughs> bodies. And, and, you can, and, that's real, and they're like secure. You can't get in or out like without signing into a sheet and all of this stuff. So sure, it sounds like my office, but anyways, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> But the deal is fun. Like the the deal is is kind of exciting, and and it changes. Like these new bidders come in sometimes, and I, that was kind of thrilling. And while I was doing that, someone said you should read this book, Barbarians at the Gate, because it kind of it's about a really big deal that took a long time, and there were multiple bidders and all these things happening. And I read the book, you know. It's written like a novel. It's kind of fascinating. And I was like, this is super interesting. This is what I want to do. And this was this was sort of all still, it was, I, I started work April 2000, which was just after, well, it was just the beginning of the bus. Okay. Yeah. And yep. so I was like, I really want to do more of this MBO, LBO type stuff. And that, it was kind of like a foreign thing at that, at that time. But these activists came back into the market. I didn't know that they were activists at the time. They came back in as like... Um, just guys who are harassing these dot-com companies because there were dot-coms in Australia. This is in Australia. They'd raise money, no business plan at all. And we're just burning cash all the time. But these guys would get control. And I had read a little bit of Buffett. At that st- like I'd read, I, I, oh, I owned security analysis and had like flicked through it and was like, mm-hmm. this is way too hard. <laughs> this is way too dry. And I, I'd, I'd read like the 19, the original edition, like the 34 edition, which is like railroad yeah. bonds and stuff like yeah. that. So, like uh, hard to read hard to read <clears throat> impossible but i did remember that there were these chapters like i forget now but 28 29 mm-hmm. there's two back to back it's like the net nets and um and then the relationship of value to shareholder rights and so that was that kind of i remembered that as i was looking at these deals coming through and having read um barbarians at the gate and then i thought you really need to under like i understand the nature of a trend. I understand what happens in a deal, but I don't understand why the deals are done. I don't know what the value is or how you figure that out. So I tried to start reading anything. Then, so somebody said to me, "Well, the, the best investor in the world is a bloke by the name of Warren Buffett, and his letters are available for free online, and he runs an insurance company." And I was like, "That's the most. I don't care at all about an insurance company, but I go and read these letters." And then as I was reading the letters, I thought, I can understand this stuff. I kind of understand what he's talking about here. And that just, then I just, like, Amazon, just absolute bombing raids through Amazon, just any book that mentioned value or was, like, tangentially connected to anything. Mm. And once I'd read every single, like, hundreds of books over a long period of time, then I started finding these old vintage books that were about, and I've still got some of them in my bookshelf back there. They're, like, books about... Slater Walker, which was this, I like the takeover stuff from the 80s. So I got Slater Walker was a, a UK merchant bank. And okay. there were these Aussies who do all these takeovers and they leverage buyout books and then the mechanics of leverage buyout. So I read all that stuff. How do you, uh, how do you compare and contrast what happened in the 99 going into 2000 period with this period? You know, because all of us who are value investors, we sort of hoped that was going to play, you know, this was going to play out the way that did. We hoped we were going to get the bear market that's down 40%. We're not down at all. You know, and, and we've obviously gotten, now that we're into the bear market, we've gotten the exact opposite of that. So how do you look at that period relative to what's going on right now? I would say that the, the thing about the late 1990s is they were clearly not very good businesses, right? They were, they were losing money. Whereas many of the right. things, I, I do think that 
many like if you were to think about how the market is ranked if you just rank stocks on like the quality of the business i don't think that the ranking is necessarily wrong like i do think that google is one of the best businesses in the world microsoft's one of the best businesses in the world facebook very very good business not entirely sure about the long-term prospects of it but still a very good business netflix you know not as good again but i i do think that the those better stocks that have seen a lot of the growth have been appropriately rewarded. I do think that they've got ahead of themselves over the last few years. I talked about it on my own podcast when I was like looking at Microsoft. It was like on a 2.8% free cash flow yield. I was just like, even growing at 30% a year, it's hard to get to for me to pay that kind of price for that kind of thing. But then as we've gone into this bust, um, value Value sold at first, that's worth noting, which is not uncommon. Value, mm. for whatever reason, value goes a few, a quarter or a few months beforehand. And then value really got hammered into it because values just seem to have um, concentrated into energy, which has got hammered. Financials haven't been so hammered, but there may be another shoot to drop there. But I, I, I think it's worth noting that in 2007 to 2009, the internet stocks, sorry, sorry, what am I talking about? The, the energy stocks didn't get as beaten up at the start because energy had done very well into the run-up into that. And I, th- I don't know why it is. Maybe there's some reflex. You, you kind of hide out in those stocks. And it was the second half of the bust, the laser 2008, that really went for energy. And I, I suspect that there's a little bit of that happening this time around that where tech has skated. Some of it has skated so far. When the real pain comes in, people just sell indiscriminately and they'll sell whatever they can put their hands on. And I think that's probably what happens. Although they are better businesses, so there's an argument that maybe it doesn't happen this time. Maybe they skate the whole way through. Do you have any feelings on what the, the catalyst might be here that finally gets value going? You know, I, I was you know, in my own naivete or whatever it was. I was looking back at August 27th last year when value seemed to get going and it got roaring and, you know, I was right. like, this is it. This is the bottom. We've finally good. seen it. And then, <laughs> you know, and Cliff Asnes came out with his piece where he, you know, said we could send a little bit into value. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the calendar year turned and it all just completely fell apart. It was 1217. Any- it was 12-17 was the peak. I, I watched it and I didn't know until the end. Yeah. Oh my God. And then it's given it all back where like the, the premium's gone and more now, or the, that return from like 827 is gone now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at spreads right now, I mean, for what we're seeing across a variety of metrics, I mean, you're back to essentially getting very close to 2000 levels now in terms of value versus growth. So not only did we not have our surge, but as you said, we gave it back and then some after that. And I'm wondering where you, what you think might eventually get this turned. Is it just going to, is there anything we can predict or is it it just, we have to wait this out as long as it is and, you know, whatever the catalyst eventually is, that's what it'll be. I sometimes think, that you've got to step back a little bit from like the public markets and think about them on an absolute basis. There is some point at which these, these things just become absolutely cheap. And they're, they're, I think they're well and truly at that point now. It's just, um, it takes a little bit of time for folks to actually start. So I think it's like, maybe they just start going private. There, there was this research and I, I, what was one of the things I started tracking though, this, uh, Piper Jaffrey, the, the bank published this research, uh, by these guys who eventually spun out and ran their own firm. But at the time, these three guys, they wrote, uh, the first one was called uh, the Endangered Species List. 
And then the second one was called Darwin's Darlings. And so what these guys did was they looked at all of these companies that were just same thing that's happening today. Like there's a whole that, you know, all of the money goes into the indexes and it, by virtue of the fact that the indexes are market capitalization weighted, the money goes to the bigger companies in the index, mm-hmm. which tend to get, you know, the, the, the rich get richer, the winners keep on winning. And so they were looking at these smaller companies and they're saying, look at these companies, they're growing really quickly. They've got great returns on invested capital. They're great businesses, but they can't get a bid. And then what happened after that was there was this golden age of private equity. So after the, after the dot-com smash-up, there was this everybody then be, wanted to become, you know, every, every person who I know wanted to become a private equity investor, wanted to get into private equity because that was where all the money was and that was where it was all going. So I would not be surprised at all if that is what starts happening again this time. And that is, um, you know, that's an interesting kind of, there have, there have been these cycles, like the 80s was a financial engineering private equity takeover age, then the 90s was a tech age, then the 2000s were financial engineering private equity, then 2010s tech, uh, tech VC, and maybe we go back into financial leverage buyout private equity world, which would be very, very good for fundamental investors which is what value guys are. We're kind of looking more at the financials. So I think absolute cheapness combined with um, a little bit of performance there, all of a sudden that'll reignite and it'll take off. And then I think, you, you know, if you look at what happened to the late 1990s, all these very big companies, big takeovers. Um, Bruce Wasserstein wrote his book, uh, the name of which just escapes me, Big Deal, where... He was talking about all these big transactions and giving the Wasserstein, the famous Wasserstein speech where he said there's going to be one winner in this industry and you've got to pay up to be that winner. Um, and then all of those companies through the early 2000s did nothing. They were still very good businesses, still growing very quickly, but the, the, they were so expensive that they had to grow back into their valuations before anything started happening again. And the really cheap, junky stuff because it was absolutely cheap, did very well. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see for the next decade all of these very expensive companies have to grow back into their valuations, even though they continue to do very well on a fundamental basis, still growing very fast, just too absolutely expensive, whereas really cheap stuff, yeah, they're terrible businesses, but they're still really, really cheap. And if you can make money taking them private or taking them over or investing in them, money will flow there. So that's... That's kind of what I think. Probably it's also what I hope. <laughs> did, you see the, uh, did you see the um, recent piece by Patrick uh, O'Shaughnessy where he looked at the, um, the valuation of small cap value versus large cap growth and yeah. then other periods? And I think it's something like over 16% excess return in small cap value over the next decade on an annual basis versus large cap growth given where the valuations are. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you touched on this in your book. Everybody wants to buy the high-quality company that they can get for a good price, and a lot of people want to avoid, you know, the not-so-great company that you can get at a much better price. But in your research, you found that you actually are better over the long term buying the not-so-great company that you can get at a really good price. And particularly, I think, and I may be wrong about this, but particularly coming out of these bear market periods, you get the lower quality value stocks that that have the bigger rallies. Is that right? That's it. That's The, the best time to be deep value is is at the tail end of a bust and coming out the other side. And the reason I say the tail end of a bust is if you look at, so just going back to 2007, 2009, the value 
uh, the cheap value decile in the FAMA French data, I think using price to cash flow, it bottoms November 2008. So that's a full four months before the right. market and everything else bottoms. And it was, it was rocketing before uh, the market was. And then it just, it, it took another, like it, it went even more vertical after that. And so a lot of the gain for this full cycle for deep value occurred in that period from November 2008 to maybe June 2010. And then it's been a much more, you know, it's sort of just kept up after that. 2000, 2002, like value sold off in 1998 or something like that. So value didn't participate for like four years, but then was just rocketing for years while the market was coming down. This time, like, that's one of the things you have to be careful of about value. You don't want to look too much at what the market is doing because you have to realize that value runs its own idiosyncratic course and value could at any stage here start working out. I don't want to call it too early, but I wouldn't be surprised if value gets going a quarter before the market does. So um, do you use, I watched your podcast with the Tweety Round guys, which was really good, by the way. And yeah, you know, when, when, when you, um, there was a point where they were talking about, I think you were asking, you know, do you guys, are you balance sheet based investors kind of like Graham or how does quality like express itself? And, you know, I thought the answer was, was kind of good. They said, you know, we're, we're looking at future cash flows, but we also look at the balance sheet and they're, I think kind of trying to marry or blend the two. If, if something on the balance sheet shows, you know, that it, this company is just trading at such a great valuation, you know, they'll go there, but they also take this sort of kind of, I think, discount of cash flow to some extent in, into their analysis. So, but what I want to ask you in terms of how you run your strategy, how does quality or negative quality sort of come in there or does, you know, does, does it not? I have a, you know, I just don't like return on invested capital as a measure of quality. And I, uh, that's not to say that there, you just have to know what kind of investor that you are. So th there's nothing wrong with looking for compound, high rates of compound growth. And then your metric for doing that is return on invested capital. Mm -hmm. And then you have to do a lot of work to make sure that that return on invested capital is sustainable. And that's not work necessarily in the financials. That's work in the business right. strategy in the you know the total addressable market the cost of acquisition of a customer it's all of those sort of it's that's that's where all of your work is for someone like me what i'm looking for my definition of quality is how well do the accounting in how does what how well does accounting operating income translate into cash flows how healthy is that balance sheet do they have mm -hmm. cash on their balance sheet to, to you know i'm a little bit i i really really like the way tweety brown invests i i sort of I didn't really realize, but I, I, I invest very similarly to the way Tweety Brown do, you know, they, including like you, if you have a look at their last report, they talk about using acquirers multiples as the sort of metric that they like to identify stuff. And when they, in that interview, they also said they were looking at, they look at, they, you know, what are the takeover multiples paid in the industry? That's something that they look at. I don't necessarily look at that, but I, I, I'm just looking for absolute cheapness, but I definitely... I look for balance sheet health, liquidity in the balance sheet, because um, all of those things, you know, that it hasn't been uh, it, that hasn't been helpful, you know, for a decade. Because it's there's it, when there's liquidity around, it, it's less relevant how good you are at, or how long you can survive without reasonable cash flows. All of a sudden, it becomes very, very relevant right now when mm -hmm. you know maybe everybody gets bailed out. But I don't. I don't I don't know that you could necessarily have relied on that 
as being the way that you got out of this trouble. People have, people cannot imagine. Like it's, you know, I'm on Twitter all day long. I talk to a lot of folks. There are lots of value guys who've drifted into um, compound or high growth type stuff. It's very hard for them. And I see anytime I post anything about my stuff, I see their comments underneath. They're like, "These are junky companies. They're not growing, or they're not growing very fast." I'm like, "That's that's that's absolutely true." But you have to realize that what this business is about is it's about finding mispricings and these things are wildly mispriced. And when you find wild mispricings, that's how you get explosive returns. And it's just worth bearing in mind too that once that cycle ends, there will be another cycle where it will be better companies growing at higher rates. Mm. We'll get, and so that's something that, you know, we all have to adjust a little bit better for next time. Those of us who sort of, I'm speaking about myself here, just didn't understand what was happening and kind of looked at the, 2000 to 2010 decade as being the template for what would happen next was i think there's a little bit more cycle in it what do you guys think are you what when you're when you're constructing your portfolios are you what's your are you, are you looking at return on invested capital is that a is that an input well it yeah it is to some extent but you know we, we follow the guru strategies we follow exactly so you know in, in our case we're just reading through you know we're taking the criteria in the academic paper or in the book and we're implementing it exactly and then in some cases, you know, touching on the issue of negative quality we talked about before, we're filtering out, trying to filter out the absolutely terrible stuff, you know, the, the really high debt, the cash flows that aren't keeping up with EPS, you know, the companies, we, we will use earnings estimates to say like a company, the earnings are expected to decline dramatically in the future. And so we'll, we'll screen out the absolute worst from that perspective. So we use a little bit of a different approach, but we, we also will try to, we'll try to screen out the really bad companies. Yeah. So it's more like the, it's sorry, it's more like the AUR. It's like, you know, you, you get a quality score of, you know, zero to 100% and the bottom 10%, you know, that score that have the lowest quality score, they're just excluded from being included in the portfolios. How would you, uh, switching gears for a second, I wanted to ask you about COVID-19 and sort of some of the arguments that value is broken, but breaking them down into short-term arguments and long-term arguments. And one of the interesting questions I've gotten that I had a hard time answering, to be honest, is when, when we look at COVID-19, all of us that are value investors are looking at the price relative to something, whether it's earnings or cash flows and, and all of those somethings occurred before what has now become a breaking point. So whatever those earnings were, whatever those cash flows were last year, whatever it is after that breaking point is going to probably be really, really different. And so the question is, how do you distinguish, you know, the, the companies that really are attractive values when maybe we can't rely on those past fundamentals as much as we, you know, can in a normal time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I don't have a really good answer for it other than I don't know that this is any different to what we always do like we're always buying something in a crisis and it's usually it's more specific to the company and the reason that you get this chance to buy it is because there's this massive uncertainty people just don't know what the next quarter or two look like and so for value guys like that's business as usual right you just get to go in and buy these things before you find out what the answer is but you got an idea on a TTM historical basis what the business is capable of You've done some work on the balance sheet, so yeah, they can survive. They generate free cash flow under normal circumstances, clearly the next quarter or two. You know, anybody who does a DCF valuation can tell you how important the front month year or the front years are to the valuation, like not very, right? It's, it's all like in 5% the term. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not really relevant at all. So the question is, can they survive? But as a value guy, you've already done that work too, right? You've looked at the balance sheet. You've got an idea. 
I didn't factor in bailouts to my answers, but I, I, I thought that the stuff that I buy is already pretty robust. I'm hoping that it's central to the economy. I've got one energy stock in there. I've got one airline in there. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the, airlines are, the airlines were cheap before we went in. Energy was cheap before we went in. I've tried to already buy the ones that have got the best balance sheets and the best, most efficient businesses. So, you know, that ends up being ConocoPhillips, the bad cop, as I like to call it, and uh, COP's the, the ticker, and, um, and uh, Southwest, which is LUV, is the ticker they love. I already thought they were the best ones going in. Maybe they get bailed out. I, I don't know, but I still think that the process, regardless of what the crisis is, the process is the same. It's almost that's a good way to look at it because almost if you look at 2019 as sort of normal times, and then you assume this is eventually, whenever this is going to be, this is going to be over. You know, looking at what the business was in normal times is probably the best thing we could possibly do right now. You know, otherwise there's really nothing to look at. It's, I mean, the, the, I think the question is, and I, I, I get criticised for doing this because I use, I, I don't invest using Cape, but I, I think it's, it's a reasonable proxy for where the market is. I don't think that the single year P on the market is very helpful because you get these periods of time where the market, you know, so 2008 famously was a negative earnings year because the banks all had to write off so much. For the decade after that, anytime I use CAPE, people would say, oh, well, you, that CAPE's understated or CAPE's overstated because the, the earnings are understated because they include that anomalous 2008 year. And I'd say, but that's the point. That's why you because there is a cycle and you have to include that. And I think Cliff Asness had done some work where he said, even, as, even including 2008, these, are still a non, these earnings are actually overstated because the years before that were overstated. You know, they were just, that was the top of the business cycle. That wasn't normal earning power. That was peak earning power. And then the last 10 years have been very, very good years. And I get criticized now when I use Cape because people say, well, and this is a new one for me because I've been used to arguing the other way. Now people are like, well, now the multiple is um, understated because you should be taking down those earnings because that were very very good years and that's that's not the, that's not sustainable either. So, but so that's the reason that you use a cyclically adjusted earnings number because there are very very good years and there are very very bad years and you don't really know. It's hard to tell when you're in the middle of it whether you're in a very good year or a very or maybe maybe you know that you're in a very bad year, but the very good years are kind of indistinguishable from normal earnings years. So I think 2019 might have been an unusually good year and the last five years might have been unusually good years. And so using something cyclical, at least it gives you that, at least it makes you think, don't look at, don't look at a single year metric. It's, mm-hmm. But I don't invest on that basis. I just use it to, for context. Yeah, you're, you're almost going to have to use some sort of cyclical thing coming after this year too because who knows but, what this year is going to look like, but whatever it looks like, I mean, you're not going to be able to draw too many conclusions about businesses based on whatever goes on this year. And yet every time that the kind of the idea of buying something for less than it's worth has ultimately worked over a longer period of time. I, 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 I don't want to sound like overconfident about this because I, I, I have been, you know, of course I think about this stuff all the time and I'm, of course I'm worried about it not working, but... I just, I, I, I just cannot see how value doesn't work on the other side of this. Like, at some stage, like if value doesn't work, I would go and buy these companies individually. I'd go and raise money, buy them individually, take them private, and you can make money that way. If you can do that, if you can think about them in terms of 
owning them as an individual and getting these really good returns. And everybody else is going to figure that out in the market too. And these things are, are, are going to work. You know, whether it's going to be a retailer who can compete against Amazon, I don't know whether each of those matchups work out. But do people still need to fly around? Probably. Do people still need energy? Probably. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how those things are going away anytime in the near term. I, I kind of, uh, I, it's hard because I'm always talking my book in these kind of things, but I'm, I'm more confident that it works now that we are seeing this bust than I was before the bust. I, I didn't know why we were selling off for those two months. Like I, I, and I know that, you know, 1217 for me was the top of the portfolio performance. It was 827 to 1217. We were outperforming from 1217 to today. We were underperforming and and I was, you know, worried that what that was was just going back into the old regime. You guys have seen that cycle many times through mm -hmm. this cycle where value gets a little run and then value falls away, value gets a little run and then value falls away. But I think what this, now that we have hindsight in it, I think value sell-off more recently was the more typical value just sells off first. It's a harbinger of a bust. You know, everybody seems to have forgotten. I, Cam Harvey made his announcement last year that the yield curve had inverted Cam Harvey wrote his PhD dissertation in 1986 and he looked at busts from the 60s, 70s and 80s and the yield curve inverted on average 10 months before every single uh, recession and, uh, you know, c commensurate stock market bust. Since he published in 1986, it's called every single recession and stock market bust and it's never had a false positive. And so the debate, after it flipped over last year in July, and he came out and he said it's flipped over, he did an interview with Meb on Meb's podcast. He went, uh, talked to Josh Brown and, and uh, Michael Batnick on theirs. There was written up in Business Insider. It was everywhere for like three or four months, and then everybody just forgot about it. And here comes the bust, just like Cam Harvey said it was coming. Yeah. And they'll look back and say, you got it right. Well, and now <laughs> people are like, well, it doesn't count because it was COVID. I mean, yeah. I think it was coming. I think you could see weakness. Like Japan had a negative 6.3% annualized print in Q4. People say, well, that's because they introduced a new sales tax. But oil was selling off. Uh, value was selling off. Globally, stock markets were selling off. Uh, everybody seems to forget that like for the first two or three weeks after COVID was kind of a thing, everybody was like, where's the volatility in the stock market here? And then it just showed up one day and we just had the most rapid sell-off more rapid than 29 or 87. Like everybody's got their bear market stripes now because you've been through it. Nobody can ever say, oh, this, this wasn't a patch on 73 or this is the worst one we've ever seen and we're only halfway through, I think. It's interesting with the, with the Cam Harvey data because like you said, everybody, you know, it flipped and everybody said, all right, this time is different. And that's sort of where we are with value right now too. I mean, if you look at, you had pointed out before that value has been relatively cheap for a while, but it was not absolutely cheap. Right. But if you look at it right now, it's both. You know, it's it's that bottom decile is very near 2008 on an absolute basis, and the relative you know valuation is very near 2000. And so, if you believe at all in long-term data, I think you have to be a supporter of value right now, uh, unless you think the art the arguments that were being made against the Cam Harvey thing are the same, and that you know although history would tell you 100% of the time when this has happened, you've done very well something has changed and you're not going to do well, you know, even though it's supported by history. But there, there's really, statistically using history, there's not really a case to be made against value right now, I don't think. When you, so I, I looked at the data. Before we sold off, I looked at the data, the French data, price to, price to cash flow French data, and I just ran the, 
the cheap decile against the expensive decile back as far as that data goes, 51 or wherever it starts. And, the, you know, the, 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 t the last two notable kind of times when value was cheap was 2000 and 2009. And this was before the sell-off. And I had an interview with Michael Green, and Michael's got this view that the market was going to melt up because passive flows and, you know, value won't put, value guys are going to get fired because, uh, because there's going to be no flows to value. And he said, and value's expensive. And I said, that's, you know, that's not true because you can go and look at the last 18 months. Value is now absolutely cheap. Value is as cheap now, as, or maybe not as cheap now, but it was, it was uh, absolutely cheap. And it was absolutely cheap to the same degree rather than the same magnitude as it was in 2000, 2009. So I think that's right. But what, what data are you using? Because I, I want more I am right data. <laughs> well, we, we have a tool on our, on our website where we look at, you know, a variety of different metrics. And, and we'll look at, you know, both the absolute and relative, relative valuation of value. And we were sort of seeing the same thing you were, which is the relative came way before the absolute did. And, and this decline here for COVID-19 is what's produced the absolute value to combine with the relative value. What, why, do you, why do you say it's absolute? What's the, what's the absolute basis? What the absolute, you mean just what we like, to, we like to use a median um, of a variety of different metrics, like a median of a value composite of a bunch of different metrics. You just but mean I, relative to its own mean. Relative to itself. Yeah. Relative yes. to itself. Relative yeah, to its yeah. own history, correct. Right. Yeah. And our sense. data only so, goes back to 05, so we're not looking, we don't have it back to 2000 or in the 70s or something like that. That's as far back as we have sort of that fundamental data. You should check out the French data. They have, the French has it on his website. He's yeah. Because you can look at the – he'll actually give you the – I think it's only on an annual basis, which is why I had to wait until the beginning of this year to look at the 19 data. But he will show you the, uh, the, the actual cash flow yield of all of the portfolios. Mm -hmm. And it's just – it stands out. It's stark. To me, it was like that was the signal that value was about to start working. And it's an, it's an interesting dichotomy right now because when, when you look at the data – the top end of the market is really expensive. And so if you look at overall market cap, market cap weighted market metrics, the market's not that cheap after this sell-off. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you almost have to look at it as two different markets right now. That bottom decile is close to 2008 cheap. levels. Yeah. But the, the, you know, with the cap weighted market, you know, as heavy, as heavily as those companies are weighted right now and as expensive as they are, the overall market's not really cheap. This is great therapy. I, I love seeing you guys getting some... <laughs> <laughs> Getting some value therapy. We should, you should host a, uh, you should host value therapy once a week. <clears throat> no, it's good chatting right. to you. Thank you very much, Toby. Yeah, Appreciate my pleasure. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. You can follow Toby on Twitter at Greenbacked, which is G R E E N B A C K D, or you can learn more about him on his website acquiresmultiple.com or subscribe to his podcast, The Acquires Podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.